I'm Andy Crouch, inviting you to download and listen to the new Beer Edge podcast, a source for news, information, and insight regarding the brewing industry and the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. The show, co-hosted by John Hall and I, talks with key players on the front lines of the beer business to give you insights and advice on how to navigate these uncharted waters. The Beer Edge podcast is available on all major platforms, or you can visit us at beeredge.com podcasts. Thanks for your support. I'm John Hall. This is Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. And this is Pete Slosberg. The answer I gave him was just do your fucking job, which meant, and I, I uh, you know, put on the table that your job is more than making beer. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer. I'm John Hall, and I've been sitting on this interview for a few months now. It features Pete Slosberg, the co-founder of Pete's Wicked, a brewery and brand that helped shape the course of craft beer as we know it today. In an industry that would become known for a lot of big personalities and members of the First Name Club, Pete was a trailblazer. His Pete's Wicked brand was on the radio, in advertisements, and thanks to beer recipes that delivered on flavor as well as a lifestyle, he led legions of fans into craft. And then it was gone. This conversation was recorded towards the end of 2019 in Belgium, when we were both judging at the Brussels Beer Challenge. And Pete leads me through the founding of the brewery, the early days, the big plans that never happened, and the eventual sale of the company. Towards the end, he offers up insight on what to do when something ends. And it seems apt for a lot of breweries these days that are facing hardships like never before. Sometimes things end. Sometimes it's out of your control, and sometimes it's a hard decision that has to come personally. No matter the case, Pete, who now works with small companies, has some advice for anyone who runs a brewery. And for us fans, I think his words help us understand how the beer industry works and let us walk some mile in someone else's shoes. Everything starts at the beginning, so that's where I started with him, early on a Sunday morning in a tiny hotel room at an even smaller table. Here's our conversation. Never drank alcohol growing up, never drank alcohol in college until I met my wife, and my wife changed my life. She drove me to drink. (laughs) So for folks of my generation, though, uh, we drank your beer in college. And you didn't drink in college at all? No, it turns out I did not like the taste of beer, uh, hated the taste of beer. And it wasn't until I backdoored getting into home brewing. I tried making wine first. Uh, We got Cabernet grapes from Napa Valley. I live in San Francisco. And uh, after fermenting the wine and realizing now I have to wait a year or more for it to mature, I didn't want to wait. So the store I got the equipment at said, try making beer. So I tried it reluctantly. But what amazed me was the taste of the first beer. It was probably a pale ale all malt-based, you know, uh, malt liquid back in 1979 when I started. Yeah. The supplies weren't that great. But when I tasted the flavor of a Whopper, my favorite candy as a kid. Okay, so the candy, not the burger. Yeah. Yeah, right. (laughs) When I tasted the malt in the beer, uh, it changed my world because, of course, industrial beer doesn't taste like malt. So that uh, that got me in a new direction. So what were you doing before you launched the brewery? Like, when, when did the idea come? Because 79, we already saw Jack McAuliffe had opened up uh, by 
80 Sierra Nevada was around. Well, Anchor, was Anchor, Anchor had, of course. They've been open throughout the whole thing. Yeah. So uh, I worked at a telecommunications company in Santa Clara, California, in Silicon Valley. And one of my best friends uh, who I met there uh, left and went to a venture capital firm. And once he went to the venture capital firm, he said, I see so many business plans. We're two smart guys. Why don't we do our own thing? Well, the telecom company I worked for ultimately got acquired by IBM, and I liked my job. <laughs> Hard to believe nowadays, but yeah, I liked working for IBM. I had a great job. Uh, and I told him, why would I want to leave a great job with a great company to do something I know nothing about? I know nothing <laughs> about entrepreneurship. Uh, I have an engineering degree and an MBA, but my MBA was in finance. Never had a marketing class. So I told my friend, no, I'm not going to leave. Uh, I'm not going to start a company with you. It's something totally foreign, so no. <laughs> and he kept bugging me and bugging me and bugging me and... That probably started around 82, 83, and one of the reasons for not leaving was our company had a great benefit. After six years, you got a 12-week paid sabbatical. Wow, okay. So as it got closer to sabbatical, there was even more reason not to leave, just to be able to get that much time off with pay. Yeah. But it actually took going on sabbatical and doing some traveling. We went to Europe, we went to South America. Uh, but in between, I decided it doesn't hurt to talk to my friend. We're not committing to anything. So we started talking and uh, ultimately that led to starting the company. And then how did you settle on naming it after yourself? Sure. Uh, just a little background, for the last four years, I've gotten involved with a national nonprofit. It's associated with the Small Business Administration. And uh, it's called SCORE. Okay. They don't want us to use, to, dis to disclose what SCORE is an acronym for, but I'll do it in secret for this audience. It stands for Service Corps of Retired Executives. They don't want us to say that because it makes us look like old farts. But guess <laughs> guess what? We are old farts. But it's a great organization. There are 10,000 volunteers around the country like me. And we give free and unlimited advice to any business person. Really? Yep. And score.org, look it up. It's a ter terrific benefit. And in going in, uh, I go in one day a week, and you have people from all walks of life. Uh, starting up businesses in all sorts of areas. But what I, uh, in my expertise, at least what I put down on paper was I like doing startups and I like doing consumer goods, having done a beer and a chocolate company. So, uh, but I get people coming in, in for all, all types of things, including software companies. And one thing that's really cool is you, when you take a step back, you see that a business is a business. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what you're in. The fundamentals are, are the same. And uh, I bring this up because what my partner Mark and I did before we did anything else, before we spent any money, was to ask ourselves questions. And by asking questions, we really came up with a philosophy uh, in, 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 in a... <laughs> 
in a very quick way, uh, the philosophy is treat everybody as if they're from the state of Missouri. I mean, our five listeners from the state of Missouri might be, uh, you know, have their fists up right now in, in anticipation of what you're going to say, but go ahead. Well, uh, trivia question for you. What is the state motto of the state of Missouri? I don't know the answer to that. It is called the show me state. Okay. And by forcing ourselves into the mindset that if everybody is from Missouri, why should they give a shit? Mm-hmm. Why should anybody give a shit about what you're doing? You're close to what you're doing. You might assume you have the best product in the world, but why should anybody else care? And when we started thinking about uh, not knowing anything about the beer business, but understanding there's something called a three-tier system mm -hmm. that you do have to go through a wholesaler, although that's, that's been modified now. We asked ourselves, why would a wholesaler sales rep who probably makes an income based on commission and not salary why should they spend any time spending uh, selling one case of our beer when they can sell a pallet of, you name the major brand? Sure. What, why? And it forced us to think about how do we become memorable to whoever our touch point is. It doesn't have to just be the uh, distributor sales rep. It, it, just starting with the distributor owner. Why should the distributor owner make room in his portfolio for yet another product offering right so having conversations like that in the beginning uh, it, it expanded and expanded and expanded till we actually came up with a strategy over a good deal of time by the way we met at a deli halfway between where I worked and Mark worked and uh, the deli was called the Jew and the Gentile and <laughs> hey it was appropriate for a Jew and a Gentile to meet there uh, and, and even though we didn't have any experience in, in startups, uh, no matter what, um, it, it really forced us to think through what we wanted to do. And the whole point of my meeting with Mark on uh, during my sabbatical was uh, not necessarily to, to agree to start a company in a certain business, but what's the strategy what's the goal of the company because if we weren't on the same page for what the goals were what why even why even start so uh wanted to make sure we were on the same page and over a couple lunches we came up with three goals and this is what really changed my uh my thinking of wanting to get into a startup the three goals were whatever we did we didn't know what it was but whatever we did the, the product or service had to be world class mm -hmm. had to be gold medal winning as a goal hard to execute, but we didn't want to do a common product. We wanted to really, really uh, do well with the product. Second was fundamental, fundamental philosophical decision. We wanted to get in on the ground floor of a new industry. Didn't know what it was, but you have two, two ways of going when you start a business. You can get into a new field or you can go into a crowded field. And how you operate in each one is, is a little bit different, but we decided Whatever business decision we have, we have to make, we have to go with decisions that give us a slightly higher probability of success. And no one decision is going to make you successful. But if you start making decisions where you think you're going to have a higher probability of success, there's a higher chance of success. Duh. So uh, we want to get into a new business. We thought 
uh, we're two smart guys. If we get into a new industry, uh, maybe there's a chance by having a great product, but but uh, doing things uh, in a more ultimately what we would call the fun way, uh, we could differentiate ourselves. Mm-hmm. So second goal was getting into the ground floor of a new industry. Uh, third was, um, and this <laughs> I knew nothing about a brand branding statement. I never had a marketing class. But our third goal was ultimately the driver of our branding statement, which was we will treat the product with reverence and everything else with irreverence. Interesting. And once we came up with those three, I thought, holy shit, what if we actually were able to achieve all three of these things? Uh, This could be a lot of fun. So those three goals led to more and more questions, such as, well, um, Sometimes it's it's better to have serendipity happen than uh, than plan. Uh, I won some ribbons at uh, California State Home Brew Competition around this time. Okay. And it turns out Mark has never had alcohol to this day. We're really? The, we're the same age. And he said, "So tell me what goes on at a at a beer competition." So I explained it to him, and and then he said, uh, "Oh, interesting. Aren't there some small breweries in the area?" Like, like you mentioned before, yeah, you know, Anchor, Sierra, Red Hook up in Seattle, Sam Adams, um, certainly uh, Jack McAuliffe. And then Mark said, do people like these kind of beers versus the industrial beers? And the fact was they were really hard to find. Right. Distribution was difficult. So when people found them, yeah, people tended to like them. And we did a little research and we saw that the beer industry was about $100 billion a year at reach at at consumer level but not growing flat up a little down a little and we thought do we really want to get into a business that's been around a long time and isn't growing but when we peeled the layers back a little we saw that nobody looked at the beer business as a uh, one level business they break it down into categories yeah premium super premium light import and when you peel it back that way, some of the categories are negative and some are flat and some are growing. And at that point, <laughs> it wasn't even called craft beer then. It was just called micro beer. Right. Micro beer was $25 million a year <laughs> and growing at 50% a year. Yeah. That's... So we thought even though we wouldn't be first, uh, it's still early enough that if we made great beer and had some fun with it, uh, there's a chance that we could differentiate ourselves and... Uh, and build a company. And it's not a knock to the existing brewers. They were all making good beer, generally making good beer, but everybody was too fucking serious. We thought, my God, how can you be serious with beer? Beer is fun. So uh, we decided to look into what if we were to start a, a beer company. And that led to, I mean, we, we can go on and on and on about the whole business aspect of it, but um, it led to decisions like, um, one of the things Mark knew from venture capital, the rule of thumb was it takes $2 million to get the cash flow positive. Okay. Neither one of us had $2 had million. Two million. Yeah. Right. And uh, we figured we couldn't raise money from venture capital or uh, private equity groups. So I heard a term from Mark uh, from his industry. It's called the F round of financing. Have you heard the F round of no. financing? It's Family, friends, and fools. Okay. <laughs> so we um, 
we realized whatever money we can get, it's going to be from those three elements. And we knew we weren't going to get $2 million from that group right away. So it forced us to think an alternative methodology, and that is let's make a stab in that direction of starting a company, but let's break it down into finite chunks. What can we, what can we do with a, with a goal, a deliverable, a time frame, and a budget? And uh, let's, let's try it and see what happens. And we discovered uh, another, another thing we didn't know about. Being in Silicon Valley, there are lots of chip companies, but very few chip companies make chips. They design them. Yeah. Then they send them out to chip foundries for production. And we thought, what if, what if that happens in the beer industry? Maybe we don't have to take years and hundreds of thousands of dollars to build a brewery. Made a call to a local brewer six miles from where I lived, Palo Alto Brewing. Hi, my name is Pete. I want to start a beer company. Can I use your equipment to make my beer? And uh, they said, come on down. So we budgeted a batch. It was a small batch, about 200 cases. That's, that was the capacity of uh, the brewery. And uh, we designed a label, made a beer, and got it out there for uh, 18 grand. Okay. And we raised 21,000 to start the company. $21,000. Wow. Uh, and we wanted to get feedback. Did the people like the beer? Did the people like the label? And we ended up doing this, this uh, process of putting out a goal with a budget and a time frame. And we ended up doing five rounds of financing for five, over five years for uh, $1.5 hmm. which in the scheme of things is not a lot of money. Right. So we had to prove ourselves. Anyway, that long story, getting back to the name. Yeah. <laughs> getting back to making decisions that give you a slightly higher probability of success. We could have named it anything. Well, that's the thing. I, it, up until that point in, you know, in craft beer or microbrew or whatever at the time, it was, you know, Sam Adams, Jim Cook went for the historical right. aspect. Right. And Sierra Nevada went for place and, you know, New Albion went for history as right. well. Yeah. We believed our gut instinct, not provable, but our gut, gut instinct is that people get behind real people. We love the model of Ben and Jerry's. Uh, being in the Palo Alto area, Debbie Fields started Mrs. Fields Cookies. Mm -hmm. We loved the reaction she got. So we decided to personalize it. And it was going to be Mark and Pete's Brewing Company or Pete and Mark's Brewing Company. Right. Uh, but at the last minute, since Mark never had any alcohol, he said, I don't drink. Pete, you're the home brewer. Let's just call it Pete. So it wasn't. Pete's, because of my ego putting the name on it, it was uh, an intentional decision to make it personal and, and just so happened that Mark dropped himself out. And that worked. Absolutely. 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 So these little decisions are important. Um, um, well, let, let's keep going. Well, I, the little decisions are important. And I think I, I'm curious because you have the benefit of time now on your side and you you had a successful launch and you had a successful brand and now you're traveling the country and you're seeing a lot of brewers you're traveling the world and seeing a lot of brewers and, and by the way the problems are the same in every country well that's what i was going to say it, so do you see the folks that you're talking to who are trying to get off the ground are they asking themselves the right questions in no your mind? no fundamentally the issues are the same everywhere and um I have to laugh 
Uh, I mean, you got to have a sense of humor with things. Uh, I hear so many people with the same complaints all over the world that I have a subtitle. I give a talk. Uh, I developed a class for, for SCORE, this organization I work for on guerrilla marketing. Uh, three-hour class. Great class. If you ever want to come see it, come see it. Um, my alternative title for it is wine, W-H-I-N-E, wine in the beer business. So many people whine and so few people do anything about it. It's always the other person's fault. And there's a lot you can do and, and, and uh, the fundamentals are pretty darn clear. Getting back to everybody is from the state of Missouri. Have you ever heard of the term, the elevator pitch? Yes. Okay. For those who don't know what an elevator pitch is, some people think it's it's a description of what you're doing in 30 seconds or less. Uh, the, the time limit, there's no time limit. The, the, the key thing is coming up with a description to convince anybody to be more interested, not to commit, but to want to hear more. Uh, you know, again, assuming they're from Missouri, and everybody is. But the elevator pitch has four core components. And this is fundamental for anybody out there with a business. Number one, who are you? And I don't mean John Hall from northern New Jersey. Right. I mean, to a, to a skeptic, why should I believe that John Hall can start <laughs> and manage a business successfully? Convince me. Oh, you have a great idea. Or your brother-in-law says you have the best beer on earth. That doesn't convince me. Convince me why I should believe that you can pull this thing off. That's the first area. Second area is, why are you doing this? What niche did you discover that you want to fill? And I got to tell you, with all the entrepreneurs that come to see me at SCORE, nobody's thought about these things. Uh, but again, if you think about this and come up with answers, you're increasing your probability of success. So the second being, why are you doing this? What need are you trying to fill? Third is, why are you different from anybody else out there? And fourth is, why are you better? And believe me, to come up with answers to all four is not easy. But you have to think it through. Otherwise, wholesalers won't give a shit about you. Retailers won't give a shit about you. The media won't give a shit about you. Yeah. And ultimately, the consumer may or may not give a shit about you. Now, in all this stuff, luck, luck happens. You can do absolutely nothing and have a terrifically successful business. But would you rather be lucky or give yourself higher probabilities of success? And do you think that, <clears throat> excuse me, that when you're talking to brewers or, you know, startup brewers these days, that they're just sort of either riding a wave or? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's all without forethought in general. Yeah. Some people think about it. Matter of fact, I had one brewer in the south of Brazil, uh, Leo Sewald from uh, Seasons Brewing, he came up to me, I think two years ago. I first met him like nine years ago. And he said, thanks. I said, well, why are you saying thanks? He said, you told me something eight or nine years ago. And I followed through on it. And I, I, I couldn't remember what the hell I, I told him. <laughs> and uh, I said, so help me, I'm getting old. Uh, what did I tell you nine years ago? And he said, in your talk, I, I asked a question afterward about things I should be doing. And the answer I gave him was just do your fucking job, which meant, and I, I uh, you know, put on the table that your job is more than making beer. 
Yeah. And he took it to heart. And now he has a very successful company in the south of Brazil. Yeah. So you got to think about it. And it, when I give my talks, I ask a fundamental question. John, you have a brewery, right? Who's your customer? And after about 20 seconds, I'll hear John say, well, in general, it's a 21 to 35-year-old, mostly male, mostly earning over 80 grand a year. And I said, no, 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 John, that's not the answer. The answer of who your customer is, is what I call your touch points. You have to sell to everybody you touch, starting at your employees. Why should somebody come to work for you? And when they come to work for you, why should they stay with you? Yeah. Uh, turnover can kill a company. Turnover it just is such a time drain and money drain. Then why should a wholesaler give a shit about you? Why should the wholesaler sales rep? So I have a list of eight or nine. Before you even get to the. Yeah. yeah before you even get to the customer. Yeah. And you have to think of methodologies to touch these people in an effective way that they remember you. And one of my favorite examples is giving one of your customers is your supplier. And people give me a quizzical look. You know, well, how is a supplier a customer? Well, if you're a small company making beer and you need supplies and the supplier has a hiccup and can't supply all of their customers, do you want to be below the line and not get your supplies or above the line and get your supplies? Right. You have to sell them that you have to be... Uh, yeah. It can't just be good enough that you have cash in hand. It has to... Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, How long did Pete's last? Started in 86, went public in 95, got acquired in 98... And Gambrinus, the acquirer, probably killed it in 2010 or so. Were you still around at the end? Or you had... Well... I, I know Gambrinus, like, was responsible at the end, but... Well, we sold it in 98, and part of the sale was I was locked in for two years to be with them. So I was there until 2000. Okay. After 2000, they changed the formula, changed the label, and... Was it identifiable to you at the end? I'm sorry. Was it was the brand still identifiable to you at the end? Oh no, absolutely not. Nope. They took the attitude of wicked meant hellish. We took the attitude of wicked meeting fun. Completely different. When you made the decision to sell, yep. What was the what was the thought at that point? Sure. Uh, well, let's go back to the beginning. Sure. When we decided to start a company, and we were talking about all these strategic questions, we, we talked through a whole process. And I don't know if I can remember all the questions, certainly not all of them, but fundamentally, we asked ourselves, if we start a business, there are three routes. And again, we, we didn't really know this, but it was just instinctual. There are three routes to take with a company. You wanna be local, regional, or national. And it turns out how you approach your business is different depending on what your goal is. So you have to decide up front if you want to, you know, uh, have a higher probability of success. Choose yeah. your goal and then then put all the decisions in in in, uh, in order to get to those goals. So we had to decide local, regional, or national. We decided up front, yeah, we want to go for it. We want to be a national company. Okay, easy to say. How the hell do you become a national company? Right. So you ask yourself the question, okay, if we're so ballsy to think we can be a national company, how do we do that? And we thought, 
you know, you have to control your destiny at all points. And looking at some of the beer companies around us, uh, just about everybody shipped their beer to a wholesaler. Mm-hmm. And we thought, why should the wholesaler owner and the wholesaler sales rep give a shit? And we decided the old saying, out of sight, out of mind. If you're not there, why should they give a shit about you? Right. So we decided from almost day one that we needed direct sales. Feet on the street, working day in, day out with the sales reps. They're not going to make friends with everybody, but at least they'll be known. So, again, higher probability of success that they'll remember Pete's versus, versus other brewers. And by not investing in brick and mortar, that allowed us to allocate limited funds to having sales reps. Yeah. Um, what else? Um, we asked ourselves, what's the in the end goal? Do we want to keep this forever? Or do we want to entertain an offer if, if we're even so lucky to get an offer? So few companies ever get an offer. Right. But we decided before we did anything, yeah, it's okay. It's okay if, some, if we get a good offer. Uh, we're not necessarily going to accept an offer, but we're willing to entertain an offer. But we were both on the same page. And I got to tell you, talking to other brewers, they've never had this conversation with their partners. Sure. And that was evident when Anheuser-Busch was on its M&A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, years Absolutely. ago. Yep. There's infighting and yep. hand-wringing. And, right. Yeah. So we had that conversation. Early uh, on. It was just, uh, yeah. Yeah, early on. And um, we also asked ourselves a fundamental question. All, all these are fundamental questions, but they're important. And the fundamental question for a business owner is, do you want to be a large owner of a small business or a small owner of a large business? Do you know what that means? Sure. I, I mean, tease it out in your mind, yeah. I'm sorry? Well, I, I, I'll let you explain it. I, I, I think I can visualize what you're okay, saying. Okay, so a lot of people want to control the stock. They yeah. want all the equity so they can make all the decisions. And if you keep all the equity yourself, uh, it's going to get hard to get, get money, and without money, you're not going to grow. Um, but you keep a lot of the equity. Uh, we decided that uh, for a higher probability of success, we're two smart guys, but we don't know everything. So let's make a commitment to hiring good people, the best people, and giving them shares so that they can participate in, in the growth of the company as, as we would participate. And we ended up giving all employees, I repeat, we gave all employees shares in the company. Mm-hmm. This is before an ESOP, this is before any of that shit. Yeah. We just decided that if everybody's on the same page, the, the probability of success is higher. and. Uh, we made that commitment up front. Uh, well, let's, my mind is spinning. I need more coffee. But uh, it's questions like that that are important to, to discuss up front. Uh, getting back to hiring the best em- employees, we kept our day jobs for a year, two years. Yeah. And we saw the potential in the company, but it wasn't coming to fruition. When you're not spending time on it, right. it's not happening. So one night we made, uh, we had a meeting and we said, Mark, either you be president or I be president, but somebody's got to run this thing day in, day out. And that, that was a great night because we didn't let our egos get in the way. We said for the success of the company, either one of us could possibly be president, 
but there's going to be a learning curve. Mm-hmm. And learning curves mean time and money. We don't have a lot of money. Right. So we made a decision that night to go, uh, get a headhunter to hire somebody from the beer business to run the company full time, not letting our egos get in the way. Right. We would be on the board and we'd both be involved, but it's okay to bring somebody in who knows what they're doing. Yeah. And that led to other decisions like uh, any small business is going to have problems. And, <laughs> and we decided, again, from before doing anything, even with limited cash, we're not going to let problems fester. We're going to spend the money when the problem occurs and solve the problem because tomorrow there'll be three more problems. If you don't solve the old ones, they're just going to creep up on you and kill you in the end, stab you in the back. Right. So we, uh, we solved whatever we could, when we could, as quickly as we could. Right now there are breweries that have been open for a while uh, that are announcing that they're closing down. And there are, uh, I guess there's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking that they're doing or there's a lot of uh, sadness or resentment. You had a brewery, you had a brand, you had something that was important to a lot of people. Um, and still lives on, I think, in a, in a happy memory way. What do you say to some of the folks who are starting to go through their own loss right now? I know your situation was different where you sold and then things changed and then it eventually it disappeared, but you're still synonymous with the brand. Yeah, yeah. You're still, I mean, people still remember your radio commercials. Uh, you know, folks like me remember drinking your beer in college and, you know, uh, all of these you know, important things. And I think that even for smaller breweries uh, that might not have been national or as well known, that there's still going to be people who will miss it, you know, when it's gone. But in, it's in that case, thinking about the consumer versus thinking about, you know, the people who actually had to lock the doors and, and, and walk away from it. Well, when we went public in 95, we got, I forget, maybe 30 million from Wall Street from going public. And we were trying to decide what the uh, best use of funds would be. One option was building our own brewery. We had plans for a 500,000 barrel a year brewery in Napa. Uh, The other option was because we invested in the direct sales force. And at that point we had about 140 employees, 95 of which were in sales. Hmm. Uh, One of the other options was maybe we should acquire other microbreweries to give our salespeople more more things to sell when they when they go out on the street. So we were actually beating the bushes to acquire other other microbrewers. And out of the blue, Gambrinus came to us with an offer, and we entertained it, and, and it ultimately took it. But during that process, I told Mark, "Look, whichever decision we make, accept it or not." Don't think about it again. If you think about it, you'll stress yourself out. You're going to ask yourself all sorts of what ifs. Uh, You're not going to be normal. So whatever decision we make, move on. Don't think about it again. We accepted the offer and for the first several years, and Mark was seeing what Gambrinus was doing, and I said, Mark, stop. We made the decision, accept the decision, let's move on. And uh, so for people who have successfully exited or unsuccessfully exited, 
don't overthink it. You'll you'll you won't be the same. You found life after beer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're still in beer uh, in a lot of ways, but then you just started pursuing your other passions as well afterwards. Yeah, sometimes again, serendipity hits. Uh, Pierre Sellis, the Belgian brewer from Hoogarden, uh, was a friend, and he kept saying, "Come to." Uh, Belgium, but I never had time because I was traveling so much for Pete's. But after we sold and my uh, two-year prison term was up, uh, I went to visit Pierre. And he took me all around Belgium. Great beers, of course. Great bars, great breweries. But I discovered chocolatiers in every town, village, city. And I was fascinated by why European chocolate is so good, but our chocolate sucked. Right. So I studied it. And I, people told me, well, the access to beans, it's easier for Europeans to get the best beans. And that didn't make sense. So I looked it up and it has to do with regulations, government regulations. And uh, for example, in the US to be called dark chocolate, you only need 15% cacao minimum. Right. And the big guys make to the minimums. Uh, in Europe, the minimum is 35%. So 35 versus 15, uh, just the physical fact that you're having over two to three times as much as the good stuff makes a difference, tastes yeah. better. So um, that reminded me of why I hated beer growing up. When you first it was, started, It yeah. was all adjuncts. And when you, when you think about the cacao percentages, uh, dark chocolate in the U.S. being 15%, that means 85% is sugar, adjunct. Uh, and when you get more of the good stuff, the flavor comes through. So I thought maybe what happened in the world of micro beer, craft beer in the 70s and 80s is happening with micro craft chocolatiers in the U.S. and looked around, found a couple of new ones, and I thought, I thought maybe we can apply what we learned in the world of beer to the world of chocolate. So we started Coco Pete's Chocolate Adventures. And that was around for a good couple of years as well. Seven years. Yeah. yeah then we, we got acquired. It's like uh, history repeating itself in a lot of ways. Yeah, different, but uh, it, was, it was fun learning something new from scratch. There's nothing wrong to learn something new. You've been traveling around uh, the world. You've been judging at beer competitions. You've been speaking at conferences. Uh, we're actually in Mons, Belgium, right now at, during the Brussels Beer Challenge. Uh, uh, early morning, sitting in a hotel room. So thank you. Um, for those who like to travel for beer these days, where do you recommend folks go? <laughs> now the U.S. The U.S. is the center point in the world for beer. Really? Yeah. You spent half your year in South America. I thought you were going to tell me Brazil or something like that. You're, the U.S. is... Uh... If you want variety and, and, and different things, uh, uh, yeah, the U.S. is where it's all happening. And brewers all around the world, sadly, in general, are copying U.S. trends, not honing their skills on the fundamentals of making good beer and or using local in, uh, ingredients or woods uh, to put their own stamp on it. But that trend is, is happening because everybody's, you have to ask yourself, why are you different? Why are you better? And I think around the world, people are understanding that they have to come up with some local angles to make it differentiated. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, hang out in the U.S. then. and. Uh, well, there's no, the- there's no reason you can't come to Belgium, my God, with frites and good beer and good chocolate. <laughs> Everybody has to come here. I feel like there's so much more I want to get into uh, with you, so uh, I'm just going to have to ask you to come back another time. Yay. I want to do that. Okay. Pete, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Sure. My thanks to Pete for taking the time, and I'm really looking forward to travel being opened up again so that we can get together and finish this conversation. 
This show is produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. Learn more and please subscribe at BeerEdge.com. And be sure to download the Beer Edge podcast with new episodes each Friday. Hosted by myself and Andy Crouch, it helps you navigate the world of beer during COVID-19. Nate Schweber does the music for the show. Jeff Quinn designed the logo. You can find me online on Twitter at John underscore Hall. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L. Or you can email me at johnhall at beeredge.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for leaving reviews. And thanks for the support. New episodes of this show are released every Wednesday. And since that's it for this week, that's when I'll be back again to drink beer and think beer. I hope you'll join me. Take care.